Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion of UK politics at Westminster and beyond. With me, Miranda Green. Joining me today are George Parker, our political editor, and David Bond, our Brexit editor, to discuss the likelihood of Boris Johnson being able to pull a Brexit deal out of the bag by October the 31st. And James Blitz, our Whitehall editor, and Robert Shrimsley, our chief political commentator, will help me read the runes on the party conference season. So George Parker, Amber Rudd resigned from the cabinet last week citing as her grounds for resignation that there was completely inadequate preparation going on to rescue a deal between the UK and the EU. Since then, the government have insisted, no, there is a lot of work going on. Which is it? I can understand Amber Rudd's frustration about this because she's asked for details of what the government's proposing and none was forthcoming. And you speak to people in Brussels who say exactly the same thing, that the British government hasn't brought forward concrete proposals. And it's also true to say that the majority of people in Whitehall are dedicated to the Herculean task of trying to prepare for the possibility, I think it's no more than that now, of a no-deal exit on the 31st of October. But I think she's not right to say that nothing's going on. I think that Boris Johnson has found himself in this predicament this week where an election has been taken off the table, effectively an early election, and no-deal exit doing a lot harder. And I think he is now determined to get a deal. And there's a lot of question here about the tactics of when you actually put your cards on the table, because even people in Brussels and some pro-Europeans I was speaking to today accept that if you put your big proposal on the table now on the famous issue of the Irish backstop, it'll be shot down in flames immediately ahead of the Tory conference. And the timing of this, I think, is important. But I think we'll see the real showing of the hand after the Tory conference in the first week of October. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because I was looking at some criticism of the government on Twitter the other day, which said, you know, all this talk of trying to get a deal, which all, of course, centres around this question of what you can do with the Northern Ireland backstop, it's just political theatre and it's just for show. But actually, as you say, isn't it really a question of the theatre at the Brussels end, partly, as to how you get them to react in a positive way to some sort of movement further down the line? Yeah, all these things have to be very carefully choreographed. And people in Brussels understand how these negotiations play out. It's a very technical issue. And in a way, by playing it slightly longer, it's allowing people to start to assess their options. And it's certainly allowed Boris Johnson time to assess his options, which are very narrow now, and which is why there is this newfound effort to get a deal. But also, it's allowed time for pressure to build up on the DUP, who support Boris Johnson's government, of course, who've been the real obstacle to any big changes to the backstop arrangements negotiated by Theresa May. But it's becoming clear that the Northern Ireland business communities furious with them, once a deal done, no deal will be a disaster for Northern Ireland. And incidentally, it will be a total disaster for the DUP in the election that would follow a no deal, because a large number of those, including Nigel Dodds, the Westminster leader, would lose their seats. So pressure's building on the DUP to take a more flexible approach. And I think that actually gives Boris Johnson a bit more flexibility when he goes to Brussels eventually with whatever he's going to propose. So David, this is really interesting. Clearly in London, the fact that Boris Johnson expelled all of those MPs from his own party dramatically lost his majority, then paradoxically left him 
less dependent on the DUP to govern, which meant that he then had this sort of added wiggle room on the Northern Ireland backstop. Do you think that new opportunity has communicated itself to Brussels and to the other EU capitals, or are they still implacable on no movement? No, I think the message is getting through to EU leaders and to Brussels that there is some movement here on the possibility of doing a Northern Ireland only backstop or taking some elements of the withdrawal agreement out of that. But there must be some amusement in Brussels at the idea of of this coming back because it was them who proposed it back in 2018 and now suddenly it's back on the table again as a way out for Boris, this sort of grace escape option that he now seems to have left to him. But there's still a sense, I think, that what they've proposed so far, the British government, is not enough and that they need to go much further and that they need to see more detail. So Michel Barnier telling the European Parliament on Thursday that at the time I'm speaking to you, we do not have reasons to be optimistic. Simon Coveney, the Irish Deputy Prime Minister, also saying that so far they haven't seen enough concrete proposals. But there is definitely some optimism around and there is a willingness to get a deal done if they come back with something a bit more concrete. Can you just explain to us, David, also for our listeners, what this difference is? Because the thing that Tory bench is objected to so stringently in the May proposals was this idea that the backstop would be the whole of the UK. But in fact, the May team thought that was a negotiating triumph from their side. So this is actually, as you've said, going back a stage in the negotiations. But what would it really mean in practice? Well, what the hard Brexiteers were worried about was that the backstop would tie the whole of the UK into a long-term customs arrangement with the EU and therefore wouldn't allow them to go off and do free trade deals elsewhere. What the Northern Ireland-only backstop opportunity offers is a way of separating Northern Ireland off from the rest of the UK. And as Boris Johnson's team has so far proposed, is to have something which focuses very much on agricultural and food products, which of course is 80% of the volume of trade across that border. And so in some sense, this would be a very neat solution if you can get this past the Northern Ireland political element. George has already flagged up there that there is movement on the DUP side that maybe even if they could row in behind it, a possibility of getting something through. I think we should say that Downing Street has made it clear it isn't going to go down the route of a Northern Ireland backstop. And I think that's probably true in its technical sense. It will be a variant that will take bits and pieces of different ideas. So David mentioned this idea of an all-island area for animal and food safety checks. Customs might be dealt with differently with checks away from the border, the famous alternative arrangements. So you can see different bits of different models coming into play. I don't think they could get away with calling it the rebranded Northern Ireland backstop that Brussels initially proposed, but there are different options that people are considering. And this all stems from uh, Boris Johnson actually quoting the late Reverend Ian Paisley, doesn't mm-hmm. it, who famously said, our people are British, but our cows are Irish, which sort of opened up the possibility of using the reality of one landmass on the island of Ireland as the basis of a new deal. Well, that's right. And the Northern Irish have always been very practical about this. The, the sheer volume of trade going across that land border is so huge that it needs to be kept clear, not just from the point of view of economics, of course, but also from the point of view of the peace process. But there's one thing about Ian Paisley's senior's comment that may not hold true for very much longer if this goes wrong, because at the moment, the people might be British, or they probably also have Irish citizenship as well, many of them. But the opinion polls suggest if Boris Johnson gets this wrong, and there's a disorderly exit and barriers go up on the border, there will be a strong push for a so-called border poll, the reunification of Ireland. And there have been opinion polls recently suggesting not only the Northern Ireland population support some kind of backstop arrangement, but also there's growing pressure for reunification of Ireland. And David, can I just go back to this point that George made at the beginning of our discussion, this idea that the British government dare not put down a concrete 
proposal in black and white, the sort of last chance <laughs> proposal for fear of it being rejected too early. So that's why we're pushing further and further towards the deadline. But then, of course, they're into this problem where they're criticised for not putting down a concrete proposal. How much understanding do you think there is from the Brussels end and from other European capitals of the fix that the British feel that they're in? Well, I think after three years, Brussels is well used to the way that the UK is operating on this. And so I don't think they're too surprised at some of the things unfolding and they try to stay out of it as much as they can. But I think the key question here is one of timing. And if you think about it, the original strategy that Boris Johnson came into number 10 Downing Street with was to push hard on the possibility of no deal, to talk up the possibility to get preparations going. And we're still seeing that with the publication of the Yellowhammer document this week. And now no deal has effectively been taken off the table, although it could still be a distinct possibility. The idea of that happening before the 31st seems now a bit more remote. Mm. And so the pressure that they were trying to build through the possibility of no deal has gone away, but it doesn't take away the fact that this timing of when they actually propose an alternative, it doesn't give them much time to get anything through in time for the 31st. So you have to be now thinking that there has to be an extension, even if Boris is able to come back with something which might fly in Brussels. Mm. It's terribly difficult for him politically. And George, just on this point of if they can manage to come up with something that works on the backstop, what are the realistic prospects for then finally getting a deal through the Commons? Because obviously, you know, we've sat around this table watching Mrs May try and fail three times. They are assuring everyone this would be something different enough. Mm. There's the question of whether they can get those 21 Conservatives who they <laughs> deprived of the whip a couple of weeks ago back on side. Then they've got the right wing of the Tory party, the European Research Group, to try and get enough of them on side. And then can they tempt enough compromise-minded Labour MPs into the fold to just finally get it through? What do you think the probabilities are? I think it's possible, but it's going to be extremely difficult. I think that's the best way of putting it. But you mentioned a lot of the moving parts there. They need to whittle down that hardcore, the so-called Spartans, the ERG. That needs to be the first thing. And I've just bumped into one of them on my way over here who was saying the Spartans might have died at the past, but they saved Greece. And the, <laughs> the, the, the language is still pretty hard. But I think Boris Johnson thinks he can peel a few of those over because he thinks he's got their trust. He's a Brexiteer in a way that Theresa May clearly wasn't. I think the other thing that's changed since Theresa May's three failed attempts to get the deal through is the growing sense on the Labour benches that we just have to get this done. A lot of Labour MPs obviously representing leave areas. Some people think up to 20 or 30 or even 40 might be prepared to vote with the government now just to end the agony on this. And the question about whether Jeremy Corbyn would turn a blind eye to that, because otherwise the Labour Party goes into an election with a completely ludicrous position on an EU referendum, trying to straddle both sides of the argument. Is it in the Labour Party's interest to actually get this over and done with and have an election force on public services and all the things they would much rather talk about. So although it looks difficult, especially if the DUP are opposed and the Spartans are still defending the past, I still think it's possible. And you're already starting to see overtures from Downing Street towards the 21 Tory MPs. They booted out of the party for opposing a no-deal exit. They now need them back on board to back the deal. Just in terms of those Labour votes, do you think that the Labour Party would go as far as to abstain or would they whip it but not enforce the whip? Because we have actually seen moments where... Rebels went unpunished. Mm. I think abstaining would be a big statement by the Labour Party because that would basically lead to Liberal Democrat leaflets in every Remain seat in the land saying that the Labour Party is an accessory to Brexit. I think that would be too obvious. I think 
the fact that maybe a few dozen rebel Labour MPs defied the whip and did it would be a more convenient way for Jeremy Corbyn to disguise the strategy. So party conference season opens this weekend. It's likely to be another tumultuous one, as they are every year now because of the Brexit divisions on show. Robert, you this week were eye to eye with Nigel Farage, who eschews the sort of conventional conference season, but is touring the country, trying to whip up support for whatever it is he thinks he's going to do to make sure that Boris Johnson delivers a proper Brexit in his terms. It's very interesting what the Brexit party is up to at the moment, because one of the things about the whole Brexit process is that... Everybody is playing this monstrous game of chicken with everybody else. And what Nigel Farage is essentially saying is, if you don't deliver the Brexit I want, I'm going to run against you, Boris Johnson, and ensure what? I'm going to ensure that the Remainer side win and that we have another referendum. I mean, it's a nonsensical scare tactic position, a bit like Boris Johnson's to the European Union. If you don't give me a really good deal, we're going to do no deal. It's all very strange. But I think there is beginning to be this hint of desperation about the Brexit party's position because they do understand that if they stand against the Conservatives, they're going to do great damage to the Leave side. Now, they're making very strong noises about, ah, but Boris Johnson's offering Brexit in name only. But, you know, deep down, they understand the consequences of this. And they've really ramped up the rhetoric this week. There was an extraordinary thing where they took a full front page wraparound on the front of the Daily Express and people were joking they weren't quite sure why they'd paid for this since they could get it for free most days on the Express. But you do have this sense, watching Nigel Farage and Richard Tice of the Brexit party, I had this sense of looking at people who are rather like ticket touts 15 minutes before a big football match. You know, They've got something of value that they want to trade, but in 16 minutes' time, it's not going to be worth anything. So they've got to figure out went to cash in their chips. And the deal they're demanding from Boris Johnson, which is the right to stand unopposed by the Conservatives in up to 50 or 60 or 70 Labour target seats, is a deal which ensures there could never be a Conservative majority. So it's not a deal Boris Johnson can do, even if he was prepared to hold his nose about the toxicity of allying with the Brexit party. It seems to me quite interesting because the thing that Nigel Farage always said he was doing with UKIP, which is in a sense to learn from the SDP experience and change the direction of the Conservative Party to deliver what he wants for the country, i.e. getting out of the EU. He's now, because they had so much success in the European elections, it's almost as if the Brexit Party's taken on a life of its own and is threatening to turn into a proper political party that wants representation, well, which may not be what Farage wants at all. I mean, that's the issue. I mean, he's been completely brilliant at frightening the Conservative Party to doing what he wants. He's been a phenomenal political political figure. But I think you're right. I think they are torn between this sudden idea that maybe we could go for the big time and we could replace the Conservative Party. As Kwasi Karteng would say, I'm not saying that myself, but there are people out there saying it. James, what do you make of the parallel? Robert's quite rightly said that for all the political parties, the clock is ticking on Brexit. How can they maximise their leverage and their positioning as we sort of accelerate towards deal or no deal on October the 31st, because Labour once again looks set to have a conference where that division between those who want to have a Labour with a pure Remain position versus those who want to hedge it is going to be painfully on show. Yes, that's right. I think once again, we're in a situation where Labour has this extraordinarily difficult problem it has to try and reconcile. On the one hand, many of its activists, most of its MPs voted Remain, and they certainly are inclined in that direction. And on the other hand, you have millions of voters in northern constituencies who voted leave and are very strongly minded to leave and might go to the Brexit party if Labour took too pro-EU a position. And that division will be once again absolutely on show. 
Labour has an official position which is incredibly muddled. What it seems to be saying is, look, if there is an election, our manifesto will say that we will go to the EU, we will renegotiate a Brexit deal, so there will be a Labour Brexit deal, and we will then hold a referendum. But Labour isn't clear exactly how it will approach the deal that it has signed in that referendum. Will it ask voters to support the referendum? Will it ask voters to go for the deal? or against the deal. It's completely unclear. Now, what the FT's been reporting at the end of the week is that John McDonnell seems to have had this confrontation with Len McCluskey over this position. John McDonnell, among the realists, in my view, basically saying, for goodness sake, let's have something much more simple. Let's basically say we'll have a referendum and that's it. But Len McCluskey and others seem to think that you've got to keep an offering still to the Leaf side. The real problem, I think, for Labour in this period is that the Lib Dems have suddenly come up with what is actually a very, very clear position ahead of its conference on Brexit, which is to say, if we were the majority, they won't be. But if we were, Joe Swinson, their leader, is saying, we will automatically and completely revoke Article 50. We simply stay in the EU, full stop. Now, that may not be something that's definitely going to happen. But the clarity of that Lib Dem position is very attractive to Labour Remainers who are fed up with what Corbyn is doing at the top of the party. And I think one of the interesting questions in the next few days is going to be whether Joe Swinson and the Lib Dems get some kind of bump in the polls as people start to see that that is the position they've taken. Do you think that the Labour Party is more worried, or worried at all, I suppose I should ask you, about those Remainers peeling off to the Lib Dems or to the threat on the other side from a Boris Johnson government which is desperate to try and show that it wants to spend money in Labour towns in the North and in the Midlands, spend money on infrastructure where it's been lacking, etc. Which of those flanks is Labour more worried about, or are they really not sure? Well, it depends who you speak to. I think for Corbyn and his circle, I think the risk of Labour voters going off towards either the Brexit party or the Conservatives is the real problem, perhaps the bigger problem. But they're stuck in the middle and Labour really would do best if it actually just resolved the situation once and for all. I mean, just take a position on it. Don't be facing both ways. Rob, what do you think? Do you think that Swinson has done the right thing in almost daring the Labour Party to be clearer on Remain? I think in the short term, yes. James is completely right when he says Labour Party is torn over which threat it fears more. But actually, it looks to me like the evidence is quite clear that it should be much more concerned about the Liberal Democrats than it should about the Brexit Party, that actually they have the capacity not only to win seats, but also to take Labour votes in a way that stops Labour winning them. I think they should be much more concerned about that, given the clarity of the Conservatives as the Leave Party. In terms of what Joe Swinson's done, We can argue about the rights and wrongs of simply having a position of revoke without even a referendum on it. As James says, it offers real clarity. It keeps them as the absolute top of the pile Remainer party, which is what they want. The one thing I think the Lib Dems haven't perhaps paid enough attention to, even though I understand why, is their strategy is a good one if there is an election before Brexit. But if... Boris Johnson gets a deal or the election is delayed and there's a referendum. I think the Lib Dems have turned themselves into very much of a one-trick pony. And if Boris Johnson gets his deal, I don't know what the Lib Dem party position is then. Are they going to become a rejoin party immediately? I think they might. And that doesn't have quite the same appeal. So I think what they're doing makes complete sense now. 
I do wonder if anybody in the party is giving enough thought to what they might do if this election isn't as imminent as people think. I agree with that very strongly. I do think that if they were sitting around the table now, they'd probably say, well, this is such an important issue for our internationalist type supporters that we have to really stick our neck out on it. But also they've struggled over the last few years, haven't they? The Lib Dems were flatlining at around 7-8% in the polls for a long time. And they feel that this issue is a way to gather like-minded voters that they've really struggled to attract in the past because they so obviously tend towards Labour. I'm not saying they're wrong, although people are saying. (laughs) People are saying, saying, indeed. As Kwasi Kwarteng would say, some people are suggesting. I'm I'm not saying that they're wrong at all. And indeed, Brexit has got the Liberal Democrats back in the game. They were floundering desperately, thrashed horribly at the last election. Now they're vibrant, they're viable, they've got a lot going their way. So they've been completely smart to sort of ride the Remain wave. All I'm saying is I think if this is taken away from them as an issue, I'm not sure what else they've got. If I were them, I would be putting a bit more thought into the rest of it as well. James, you were in the House of Commons watching the plotting and counterplotting unfold daily on this. Do you think people are thinking about where we might be if the government do manage to pull off some sort of deal? Because that will obviously split the other benches and all the opposition parties, as well as the Conservative side, will have to move on to the next set of arguments. Are they prepared for that or is everybody so sort of rabid in the headlights? Yes, I think a week ago we were very strongly assuming that what is going to happen was that Johnson wouldn't get a deal, he'd be obliged to go for an extension, an election, and everybody was in the election mindset. And I think what's happened, and George has been talking about it, is that the possibility of a deal is rising. And I suppose if he brought a deal there would really be enormous pressure on Labour backbenchers this time to back it and in a way that hadn't been before, not just because this would be the fourth time the deal had come and there is this very strong sense in the country that Parliament has been obstructionist, which I think is wrong, but nonetheless that is a feeling that is out there. But also, if Johnson were to fail to get this through, we would go to an immediate election and for Labour MPs in leave constituencies, there would be a reckoning about how they voted. So I think... The pressure to back Johnson is very considerable. That then leads to the question, have people thought through what kind of terrain we're going to be in if Johnson gets this through? And then he will at some point go into an election. It might not be November, December, but certainly in the near future. I think for Corbyn, it would be an enormous problem. Many, many Labour voters will take the view that Corbyn has now been defined as the person that could have stopped Brexit, could have reversed Brexit, could have got us a softer Brexit, but didn't. And I think that there will be an enormous reckoning within the Labour Party on that. I actually disagree to some degree with what Robert said on the Lib Dems, because I think, although you're right, they've taken a very extreme position in terms of wanting to reverse Brexit, and Brexit then wouldn't be reversible. I think the sense of disillusionment in Labour circles about how Corbyn has done will lead to a flow of people to the Lib Dems. Robert, I get the argument you're making, but there is another way of looking at this from the Corbyn point of view, which is that actually, if the issue of Brexit is off of the electoral table in terms of can it be stopped... That makes life a bit simpler for him. You know, he doesn't want to be talking about Brexit in an election. He wants to be talking about everything else. And if this election is not about stopping Brexit, that makes it a bit simpler for him. The need for Labour voters to go to the Lib Dems might be diminished. Actually, I think if a deal came back, Jeremy Corbyn might be quite happy to see quite a lot of his backbenchers get it over the line. See, I think that is the $60 million question, isn't it? How much a general election after a deal would actually be a Brexit election because Labour surely would be desperate to make it anything but. And in a sense, since we know that the 
Labour leadership isn't that fussed about leaving the EU. Maybe it'd just be an enormous sense of relief that they could go back to left-right politics. Yeah, the point I'm making is that the leadership may not be, but a lot of its membership will be fussed by it and very anguished by it and anguished by how Labour has behaved. I also think in the end, it doesn't really help Labour particularly to push Brexit out of the way and to move on to the next agenda. First of all, Johnson will have an enormous advantage at that stage. He will have delivered Brexit. The Brexit party problem will be significantly diminished. The possibilities for a celebratory election, as he sees it, will be very considerable. Secondly, once you've taken Brexit out of the way, the headlights are fully on all of the problems relating to Corbyn and the Labour Party in the way they haven't been before, the anti-Semitic problem, the extremity of their views on economic policy and so on. So... Frankly, I don't see it as being a huge advantage. I think in the end, the sense of disarray and angst within the party, which you can see playing out between McDonnell and Tom Watson, Keir Starmer and so on, I think that will continue. So, Robert, disarray, angst, as James has said. What about the Tory party conference? Because, for example, what will those 21 MPs who've been deprived of the whip, will they even be going to the conference? What will happen to the ERG? Will they be discussing whether, when and how to cave in the corridors of the conference? I mean, how are they going to choreograph this? It's a really interesting question because the whole tone of the Conservative Party conference last year was this waiting for Boris. Oh, crikey, he's here. You know, so <laughs> to answer your questions, the expelled MPs won't go. That I think is fairly clear. The ERG is in an interesting position because they're now almost as pure as the Brexit party in terms of their thinking that we want no deal, we want nothing at all. So I would expect to see a chunk of that on the fringe of the Conservative Party conference as they fight for a more extreme position, more hotline, let's ditch the deal. Will they be cheered if they say that? Or will the Tory party desperately be hoping that their leader can deliver? Within a Conservative Party conference, that microcosm of society that it is, (laughs) I think they will get some cheers because it's a very easy position to say, let's ditch the whole deal, let's have faith in the speech writers itself. But you also know that the Conservative Party conference is an organisation that wants to show support for its leader. They'll want to give Boris the love and they'll want to be seen to be backing him. So I don't anticipate it being a major problem. The issue simply comes down to one of if he does come back with any kind of deal on Northern Ireland, how much can he shave that ERG rump down to the minimum number possible? So I'd like to ask both of you, the conference season, even as it becomes more ridiculous, is a chance for a party leader kind of set out their stall. They're kind of guaranteed an item on the six o'clock news that night. They're guaranteed a certain amount of coverage in the papers. Who do you think will give the best speech? Because Boris Johnson has always been the darling of the Tory conference when other people were the leader. Corbyn, not a great orator, but has had quite a good couple of weeks because of the disarray in the government. And Swinson is a slightly unknown quantity, but with the wind behind her. What are you expecting, James? Who will come out well? I put my neck on the line and I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Swinson because I think she is to a large extent an unknown quantity. There can only really be upside for her. And she has taken a brave and interesting position. As far as Johnson is concerned, I haven't much of a view on Corbyn, to be honest. I think it is such a mess in there that I can't see how he articulates something that's going to get us excited at this point unless he really articulates towards a very different position in terms of a referendum. As far as Johnson is concerned, I think the key question is going to be, he will be 14, 15 days away from the European Council. How does he pitch it? He can do the usual tub-thumping speech for the Tory party conference, but the Europeans will be looking to see 
is he genuine? They accept it's a Tory conference, but they'll want to see is it genuine? And does he in any way begin the very difficult task of facing down the ERG? Because in the end, if there's going to be a deal, there are going to have to be some quite serious compromises. So the way he pitches it is going to be the most interesting thing about this conference. Is it just going to be the normal Boris Johnson? Or is there actually going to be some statesman-like realism in what he does? Because he can't leave it that late. He can't leave his position right up until the 16th, 17th of October. He's got, I think, to pave the way towards it. But Swinson, I think, let's see, if she can push the Lib Dems up in the polls, they're having a good run at the moment, they're winning over some MPs who are coming from other parties, then I think the Lib Dems could be very interesting. Robert, I think, I mean, I agree with James's headline point. I don't think the actual speeches themselves matter at all. It's what you see on telly. And I think Joe Swinson can only get, you know, as long as she doesn't fall over, she can only get positives because people don't really know her. She's pretty capable. And I think she'll do a decent speech. And I think people will see her and think she looks... People who agree with her, obviously, will see her and think that's good. She'll just be introduced a bit more to the voters. So that's fairly clearly a net positive for her. Both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn... Jeremy Corbyn is absolutely no good at speaking to the country when he's at a party conference. He will be speaking to the conference hugely... He'll be fine, but he's not good at projecting beyond where he wants to go. I don't expect him to get it terribly wrong, but I don't expect anything much from him either. Boris Johnson could go either way. He's shown he does know how to talk to the country and he does pitch his messages beyond his party. But as James said, it's a very difficult timing for him, especially if he doesn't think he's getting a deal and he's heading towards having to decide whether to sign the extension that Parliament has told him to. He doesn't want to be signalling there's no way I'm going to sign an extension if he's going to be doing it in a week and a half. So... The one we haven't mentioned, and the one who actually think will have the best of all the conferences is Nicola Sturgeon. I think yes, she's in a course. fantastic place at the moment in terms of the movement for Scottish independence. We know she's a good speaker, and I think she will come out of her party conference pretty cheered. The Tories in Scotland are in a very bad place, and a lot of people are looking at the SNP in an imminent election and thinking they're going to get back towards 50 seats in Scotland. So I was thinking that the thing that the Labour's office are probably trying to do is to craft a speech also which tries to build on this idea of Boris Johnson as a danger to democracy because they've actually done quite well on that. And I think the People's Vote campaign are doing a bit of a pivot to their demonstrations being about this idea of the Johnson coup. And in a sense, I think that there is somewhere for Corbyn to hide, James, to your point about Corbyn as a speaker if he sort of cloaks himself as the leader of the opposition who's trying to fight a government that wants to govern in a way that's damaging to democracy overall. There's no question that there's a lot of ground for that. I mean, it has been a terrible three or four weeks for Boris Johnson in which he has frightened and worried a lot of people about the way he's approached prorogation, the sacking of MPs, the stance he's taken on the negotiation, at least in the initial phase. So there's lots for Corbyn to do. But as Robert said... Corbyn doesn't really project outside conference. He projects into his own conference. He's not a man who changes the British political weather that much or has any capability of doing it anymore. So we'll see. Well, we'll see where we are in a few weeks' time. Thank you all very much for joining me. Uh, Thank you to George and David and James and Robert. Seb will be back in this chair next week. And in the meantime, it just remains for me to thank our producers, Anna Dedda and Yanina Conboy. Do join us again next week. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? 
And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.